Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the, well, not milestone episode of the Essential X-Lapse. It's episode 65, but we are talking about a milestone issue. Well, at least number-wise. I guess the story's okay too, but it's episode 65 talking about issue number 50. And you guys can't tell this, but uh, this is one of those late night slash early morning installments of, uh, of X-Labs here where uh, I'm uh, recording while it's dark out, which I haven't done in a very, very long time. Uh, thing of it is, is uh, right now it is exactly one year since we uh, lost our pug, and uh, it's been a, a weird day, a, a, like a very heavy sort of sobering sort of day where, uh, like, not much is being said, but uh, a lot of hugs are happening, and it's, no, it's not a, not a, not a, well, I'd say it's not a nice day, but it is, it is a nice day. It's a, it's nice to remember things, and, um, if I could get all the memories without all the guilt, that would be ideal, but, uh, I think anytime, anytime you're in a situation where, loss is a result you always second third fourth and fifth guess what you did in the final moments and the decisions you made or didn't make were always the wrong ones and um yeah i'm not going to talk too much about this because i I've, honestly I, I i really can't i can't talk about it without uh reacting very very um emotionally but um yeah it's been a weird day this was kind of the first domino that tipped, that uh, made 2022 such a bizarre, uncomfortable, and uncertain year uh, for us here. I think the other day, I was talking about uh, Christmas and how weird Christmas is nowadays, and how outside of very few out-of-the-house obligations, I'm, you know, pretty much at home all the time. Yet I don't need to really go too many places every, you know... We work here, we eat here, we live here, everything is in this house. And um, when we lost the uh, the pug last year, it was like the first time that I realized that that sort of thing can come into the house. Because, he, he, you know, he passed at home. And it kind of changed the way I think about and view home. Uh, you know, it's no longer this uh, completely safe place. You know, bad stuff can happen there too. You know, you don't have to leave for, you know, bad stuff to happen. And it really makes you, you know, rethink what uh, your concept or definition of safety or safeness can be. Very, very bizarre. But uh, lest I continue down this path and get us all <laughs> to the point of, uh, you know, utter despair, how about we get into today's issue here? It is a milestone after all. Let's uh, Let's celebrate. Today, of course, it is X-Men number 50, which had a November 1968 cover date. The story is called City of Mutants, written by Arnold Drake, with pencils by Jim Steranko. So I get to talk about how I really don't appreciate Steranko's interiors here, don't I? Yeah, we'll get there. Inks, John Tartaglioni, letters, Herb Cooper, edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, you probably noticed since uh, coming back to the show, I've been talking a bit about the covers, or at least mentioning the covers, which I didn't always do. And I certainly didn't do that on, you know, original recipe X-Lapsed, since every single issue of a current year X-Book has like six or seven covers. And, you know, which one which one matters, which one doesn't matter? Well, actually, when there's that many, none of them matter. Here, though, 
we've got X-Men 50 here, and unlike a lot of the recent issues, I think I'd wager that this is a cover you'll probably know on sight. Very iconic. It's mostly green. We got Polaris in the middle. She's all aglow. And it's also uh, the first appearance of the new X-Men logo. The one that, you know, with very, very few exceptions, including current year, has been the X-Men logo ever since. So yes, a very striking cover, a very iconic cover, and uh, perhaps before we get into the issue, I should qualify what I said about current year covers not mattering. Um, it, uh, you know, you guys know I'm weird about this kind of thing. I'm not a fan of variant covers. I want everything to have a dedicated cover. I want to have more issues like in X-Men 50. You know, where we just know the cover by sight. You know, a Fantastic 448. You know, something we just know. Where nowadays, I mean, you could line up 50 X-Men books from the past three years and I couldn't tell you what order they go in, in most cases. And the worst part of all is I really can't blame the artists for phoning in their work. This is something that became, like, scarily apparent to me when they relaunched Adjectiveless Spider-Man, probably... Boy, has it, has it already been like six months? It's been a little while. It's very, very recent, though. I was looking at the cover to issue number one, and it's it's terrible. I, I mean, Mark Bagley, he's either your cup of tea or not. So, I mean, I'm not judging his the quality of his work here, but it's a white cover with a pinup of Spider-Man on it. I, and it's it's a blank white cover. There's no background. It's just... It's basically just Spider-Man posed on a cover. And when I saw that and realized that this was the cover to a number one issue for the flagship character of the entire damn publisher, it's like I didn't know what to do. And I, I, it's easy to blame an artist for phoning stuff in. But then you start looking at all the press information that Marvel's putting out and sending to the shill sites. And it's like they're talking more about the variant covers than they are the regular cover. So, I mean, why would Bagley put a whole lot of effort into making a memorable special cover when his will get the least amount of press anyway? I mean, we can get the Peach Momoko rogue eating a, a slice of apple on the cover of Spider-Man number one. That'll get more promotion than Mark Bagley's cover A. So, there's a tangent that wasn't written into the script that I didn't think we'd go down today. But, uh, I don't know, that's a little bit of my uh, the chip on my shoulder about the current state of covers and how sadly we're probably not gonna we're not gonna get anything like this Polaris cover ever again where we just know it by sight anyway let's get inside here uh, we open with some of uh, Mesmero's goofs apparently unpacking Lorna Dane from a coffin now they're informed by the Mez that she is the queen of the mutants and will be treated as such Bobby is also all casketed up but uh, nobody really cares about that right now and after getting a reminder that Mesmero has inherited the legacy of Magneto, we arrive at the so-called and titular City of Mutants, where the Demi-Men, at least I'm 90% sure we're still dealing with the Demi-Men here, uh, they all, uh, well, they all greet each other by uh, hailing at one another. You know, in that, I hate the word problematic, but in that problematic sort of way. Now, inside the barren city, Mesmero changes into something a little less comfortable, so he may pontificate some more. So I guess, uh, I guess he really has inherited the legacy of Magneto, uh, judging by his behavior here. Anyway, he vows that he and his will take over and become the masters of men. And in order to do that, 
Lorna Dane has got to be hooked into a machine called the Mutant Energy Stimulator. So very Silver Age, and it makes you wonder, like, where is this machine now? <laughs> Why haven't they recreated it? Maybe they have several times over. Anyway, we shift scenes over to the haunted house from the opening credits of Scooby-Doo, and here the other four X-Men burst in and proceed to fight the Demi-Men for something like... 75 and a half pages? Eh. During the fracas, Jean receives a telepathic SOS from Bobby. She knows that he and Lorna are being held captive, but she can't figure out just where. And so she mentally calls out to the other three X-Men, telling them they need to throw the fight so that they can be captured and taken away as well. And so they do. Ironically enough, just as they decide to lose, the Demi-Men wind up KOing them with some Magneto-made knockout gas called K-19. So maybe they didn't exactly throw the fight uh, so much as just uh, lost at an advantageous time. Back to the mutant city. Mesmero is dramatically posing and continues to blather on, very, very Magneto-like. He says that Lorna Dane is being transmuted into a living goddess. Bobby, who is trapped under a bubble or something, he hears all of this and he wonders if this will change the personality of the girl he's known for about 120 minutes. He wonders if she'll walk out of this device as an evil mutant. Some demis arrive to hail Mesmero and inform him that they had captured the rest of the exes. Just then, the egg timer goes off because Lorna is done cooking. Now, she pops out of the device and, oh boy, she looks like a geek. It's like I'm saying here, on the cover, Polaris's costume, it's weird, but it looks good. But the interiors are, they're really not up to the, to the standard uh, of the cover. It's very bizarre. Anyway, Mesmero reintroduces her to the captive X-Men. He refers to her as M2, the daughter of Magneto, also the queen of the mutants. And Lorna somehow knows all of this by now. Maybe that's part of the uh, mutant energy gimmick uh, machine. Maybe it tells her the truth or what, what is perceived to be the truth, which will be later disproven and then reproven uh, many, 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 many times over over the next... Uh, Damn near 60 years. The X-Men decide here that uh, they probably ought to start fighting again. And so they do. Now, it's a really odd panel. They literally all discuss how maybe they ought to fight the bad guys. It's like, hey, maybe we should fight. And so Jean uses her hoodoo to give Iceman back his free will. Okay, with which he pops out of the bubble he'd been laying in. So... Hmm, okay. I, 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 I figured he had free will when he, you know, telepathically called out to her, but whatever. Mesmero, bless him, wanting to save us all from a, another few dozen pages of X-Man on Demi-Man punch and kick, he orders Lorna to do the thing. And so she does. Only, shocker, she uses her mighty waves of incredible force against the bad guys. Now, just when it looks as though the tide has turned and our heroes will be triumphant, we get a ba-woom sound effect as they are nailed from behind by the amazing power of Magneto, who yet still lives. And that is where we end it. But that's not the end of our story. Well, it's the end of our story. It's not the end of our issue. Because, of course, we've got backup. Well, I was going to say backups. No, we've only got one, thankfully. And this one is called This Boy, Dash Dash, This Bombshell. Written by Arnold Drake with pencils by Werner Roth, inks John Tartaglioni, letters Herb Cooper, edits Stan Lee. And of course, this is more of the Beast's origin story, and I'm sorry, these backups, they're not very good. 
Um, it's basically showing us that he exhibited his beastly powers from a very young age. And so we see him do such things as lift heavy things over his head. He climbs on stuff. He crushes his poor uncle's hand during a handshake. I mean, he's doing beast stuff. Stuff we know he can do, and I guess he could do it ever since he was a tot. Anyway, we jump ahead to Hank in high school, where one day he just so happened to be walking by the football field. The coach, for whatever reason, demands this nerdy freshman give the football a kick. That, that, maybe that happens, I don't know, I was never on the football team. Shocker, right? And so, well, Hank does the thing and absolutely murders the ball in the process. He's immediately drafted onto the team and, uh, you know, he becomes a star athlete. One day, during a game, some bank robbers fleeing the cops decide to cut through the football field during the middle of a game with, like, loaded, you know, like a packed house, you know, stands are full of people, the, the field is full of people. So, yeah, really, that's they're not the smartest um, bank robbers. Anyway, seeing this, Hank hurls his helmet at one of the baddies. He then removes his cleats, climbs up the goalposts, and dives foot-first onto the baddie. He literally sits on him until the police arrive to arrest him. Uh, the scene is apparently being televised and is being viewed by Hank McCoy's version of Jack of Diamonds, El Conquistador, as well as Conquistador's assistant, Chico. And that is the cliff from which we will hang until next time. Um, you know, back on the blog on Chris's on Infinite Earths, I would cover a lot of the uh, a lot of Bronze Age like action comics and stuff. I did a huge action comics project, uh, not 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 even counting the action comics weekly thing. But I was uh, I was trying to cover 100 issues of action comics before Action 1000 came out. Which God was that five years? Was that really five years ago? What happened to my life? Um, so I, I covered a lot of Bronze Age action comics, is what I'm trying to say here. And those came with backups more often than not. Now, I'd get through the main story, and I'd be kind of jazzed, because the, the main stories, Bronze Age, Superman, are, they're, they're all the same, but they're all kind of fun. You know, so much of it is, so much of the emphasis on those issues is protecting the secret identity, which is kind of something I grew up with. You know, that was always... I mean, I didn't grow up in the 70s, but whenever I would think about costumed vigilantes and superheroes, it was all about protecting that secret identity. As such, these stories really tickled me, and is probably part of the reason why I have uh, so much uh, distaste for Brian Bendis' stories, because that is like Brian Bendis' trick one of one, where he just... Well, he's got a couple of tricks. He either kills them, brings them back to life, or he reveals the secret identity. Those are those are the Bendis tricks. And I hate the fact that he was able to run amok with them for as long as he did. Um, I know they're putting Superman's secret identity back in the uh, toothpaste tube or whatever, but I'm um, not a fan of the, the, whole, the whole thing here. But what I'm trying to say here, and I'm taking the ridiculously scenic route, is that I would finish these issues of Action Comics, uh, and I would really be jazzed after reading the front you know, the main story. Then I'd go into the backup, and I'd come out of it with a totally different vibe. It's because, like, the backups were usually so much weaker. They were usually just, like, we've got these extra pages, can Carrie Bates write, you know, another hundred words and <laughs> see if he can fit something in here? So for me, the backup can be uh, subtraction by addition, where it can actually hinder the experience of the feature story just because we had to get through the backup as well. I, I'm having similar feelings about this run 
on the X-Men here where the front stories, they, I mean, they've been okay. They've been silly. Uh, some of them have been pretty good. But then we get to the backup and the backups, I mean, for the most part, just have not been good. Maybe it's my own decades worth of hindsight. I, I really can't say, but I really feel like these backups do the main story a big time disservice. And of course, I can't put myself into the shoes or eyeballs of a you know young kid in 1968 reading these things. But for me, in current year, it uh, I don't know. It just it it really makes me leave these books with a bad taste in my mouth because um so much of it just feels like. Well, I mean, it is filler. I mean, everything is filler, right? But uh, this just feels like um, aggressive filler, if that makes any sense. So it's like, it's at this point, it's even hard to talk about the feature story, you know? Maybe it's just a cop-out on my part. So let's let's actually try to talk about the feature story here. It was a good one, you know? It was, it was a standard superhero story here. We've got a new Big Bad who has a legacy of the Big Bad. Magneto makes an appearance in the last panel He's back, kinda um, We get a little bit of information on Lorna At least uh, we, we were promised the truth about Lorna Dane And for better or for worse For accuracy or inaccuracy We find out that she is the daughter of Magneto here Which, I mean, it, it works I feel like they're kind of uh, skipping the foundation And building the walls As it pertains to the relationship between Lorna and Iceman where, like, Bobby is actually fretting that this girl that he's known literally an afternoon has changed personalities is perhaps a little precious, but, I mean, this is a Silver Age comic book, so relationships happen pretty quickly. I did mention that I wasn't too keen on Storenko's interiors here. I don't want to harp on that. I feel like if I were to harp on that, it would just be like I was uh, trying to be a contrarian, and that's really not my style. Let's just say I love the cover. Inside, maybe, maybe it was the inks. Maybe we can blame it on Tartaglioni. I don't know. I'm sure if there were a CBR or Bleeding Cool back in 1968, they'd be blaming it on Tartaglioni, but uh, we'll just leave it right there. Um, let's hop into a, uh, a little special feature here. I mentioned, I don't remember which episode it was here. It might have been my first episode back. Uh, I had mentioned that I got a book for Christmas called Marvel in the 1960s, which uh, is like an issue-by-issue, kinda, issue-by-issue issue tour of most of Marvel's um, publications during the decade. It was written by Pierre something or another. Uh, I don't remember his last name here. I have him listed in my notes as Pierre What's-His-Face, so <laughs> that's what we'll call him. Now, I mentioned last time, and I believe that was X-Men 46, because that was actually an issue that he mentioned. I said then that the next issue he would discuss would be issue 50, and I said, hopefully I'll remember to put some notes in the script for that, and I did. So let's see what he has to say about this milestone issue. Now, he says the book has a lot of problems, not the least of which is Arnold Drake's leaden prose, which... Yeah, I guess Arnold Drake is a little heavy with his prose here. Um, not, at least in my opinion, not as bad as Gary Friedrich was. But um, there is some preciosity in here, some awkward sort of prose here. Uh, Pierre, what's his face? Is, is Comtois. Comtois? I think that's his last name. Uh, Pierre's uh, complaint here is not without, not without reason. 
Now, Pierre's got a theory. He blames Arnold Drake's style on the far stricter DC editorial regime that he'd written under until just recently. And indeed, Drake himself would say in American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1960s, Volume 2, 1965 to 1969, he would say that DC editors like Jack Schiff and Mort Weisinger would enforce their style on the writers. And he would contrast that with Murray Boltanoff, who was Drake's editor on Doom Patrol, who was uh, far less like that here. He would kind of give the writers the opportunity to explore you know, their own dialogue style, their own writing style. Uh, Drake would also reveal here that he was not a fan of the Marvel method. He claimed that it felt too constricted. And, you know, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before. I probably have. I, I am very repetitive. Um, the first time I got a copy of How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way and was introduced to the Marvel method, I couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, the idea, and, and I mean, you look at it, and it just feels very unfriendly uh, to the writer you know um and when stan was writing you know quote unquote writing skate 800 books a month i could definitely see the merits of it it's like here's a plot just draw it and i will figure it out later it makes a lot of sense almost too much sense in like the assembly line sort of a way but to actually tell a long-form story that way, uh, you'd need to have far more talent than I have to figure that out. And uh, I guess Drake felt similarly constricted that, you know, you give a plot to an artist and then you're kind of, you kind of have to just play the ball where it lies at that point. So I can understand that. Uh, now, Drake would also be critical of Smiley Stan, and this comes from Comics Interview number 16, October 1984, cover date. He says, quote, Stan was sitting on your back all the time. He was not particularly interested in bringing out the best in you. Which, I mean, that might go back to our earlier point here, where it's more an artist's showcase, and I guess the artist kind of has the lion's share of the say in the nuance and the, I guess, the story beats, you know? Because the writer will give a plot, and then whatever the artist hands back has to be, has to be scripted. And I hope that doesn't come across as me like siding with the writer side here, because you know, I, I think of it as a an equal partnership. It's just kind of uh, it's like they're kind of volleying for serve, right? You know, the first whack is a little slow, then it gets faster, and then it just it builds up to the fever pitch of okay, now we got to get this book out, and we've batted this back and forth, and here's the ball. Um, now Pierre reminds us that uh, Drake is from Doom Patrol. And he refers to it as another book that, like X-Men, failed miserably. Um, Pierre continues here. He calls the new masthead, which at this point isn't even a thing anymore. And that is, of course, referring to the X-Men featuring dot 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 masthead that we had for seven months. Pierre says that this change in masthead was an indignity. He suggests that Drake's writing was too strange and unfamiliar for X-Men fans to glom onto. He notes that Jim Starenko will be with us for a short bit, and how he redesigned the X-Men logo into something that, quote, screamed excitement. And I mean, all things being relative, I mean, I guess it's, I'd, I'd agree with that. It definitely looks far less stodgy and low budget than the original logo, and I mean, that, that logo does have its charm as well, at least in a, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to say kitschy sort of way, but I mean, it is definitely of its time, where the new logo, the, you know, the Basically, the X-Men logo is more timeless. You know, it feels very, very forward-thinking to see that logo on a book of this vintage, if that makes any sense. 
Um, now, Pierre would say that this should have been the big comeback for the X-Men, where they might soar to the heights of the Lee Kirby run, which, I mean, that wasn't all that great in the first place, but uh, saith Pierre, twasn't to be. Not even Lorna Dane's curvaceous bod and the return of Magneto could save this book now. Well, that's the end of Pierre's corner, at least for today's installment. Well, I'm sure we'll be touching back with, uh, touching base with uh, Pierre uh, in the coming episodes here. Let's hop into the mutant mailbox, which is still, it's still an autopilot here. Stan is not answering any of these letters, which is, um, it's unfortunate. Uh, let's kick it off with Bob in New York, who loved the Bobby and Hank-focused issue. He called it groovy. He kind of implies that maybe Gary Friedrich and Arnold Drake were completely baked when they wrote the scene at the Coffee of Go-Go. And uh, by the language and lingo and jargon being used here, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that old letter hack Bob might have been partaking as well. Now, of course, we know from the very insightful interview we had with, um, with Gary Friedrich a couple episodes ago... He actually didn't co-write this issue. He was already in his car driving west, so maybe Arnold Drake was partaking alone. Who knows? Next up, Eric in California. He loves that the X-Men are now split up. He says it'll keep the reader focused on just a couple of characters instead of, you know, the overwhelming five, right? I mean, Lord knows that's a lot of characters to keep track of. And of course, you know, the characterization to this point has been so wildly deep. That you can't expect anyone to keep track I mean, how do we keep track of things like Beast is smart Cyclops loves Jean Jean loves Cyclops Iceman is the youngest X-Man And Angel is the one with the wings That is very, very tough to keep track of I think we found out who these origin of the X-Men stories Are being written for here uh, Our friend Eric in California Now, despite loving the Bobby and Hank issue, he hopes that Marvel never brings back the Warlock slash Mahayogi ever, ever again. He calls him the worst baddie the X-Men ever fought. Which makes me wonder, has he even met the Plant Man? No, no, Eric's right. Eric's right. Mahayogi sucks. And since he probably hasn't yet read the Computo story, maybe Maha might actually be the worst. Maybe next month we'll have a letter from Eric saying, Mea culpa, Computo sucks. Because Computo did, in fact, suck. Next up, GC in Pasadena, who wants the X-Men to reunite. GC considers the old X-Men stories, including the battles with Count Nefaria and his, quote, Legion of Moldy Villains, to be classics. Yikes. I mean, has the book really gotten that bad? Where we're, we're actually looking... <laughs> we're looking back at the Count Nefaria Magia stories with fondness and yearning? Wow. Um, now, GC also says that the X-Men aren't as good as the Avengers or Fantastic Four, but eh, they still want them to come back together. So, I mean, wishes come true, I guess, because they are back together. James in North Carolina has a beef with another letter hack. He writes in response to Carol from the University of Washington, whose letter we discussed back in episode 50, I'm sorry, 61. Now, in it, she gave Stan and the gang an F for belaboring the point that Scott's powers aren't the same as photosynthesis. James here uh, tries to wow us with his McCoy-like vocabulary, and he wraps up by... <sighs> okay, he wraps up his letter by pretty much begging Carol in Washington to become his pen pal or long-distance girlfriend. Thirsty dude. And I mean, it worked for the peenies, right? Um, maybe James and Carol wound up together. 
I'd like to think that they're currently boring their grandkids with a discussion on the science behind optic blasts. Next up, Lane in West Virginia, who loves Werner Roth's art, which I sadly feel was a minority opinion, you know, both then and now. I like Werner's, Werner Roth's art. I think he started a little rough, but he really grew into his role as the X-Men penciler and just never seems to get the credit. I, I guess if you're not, you know, spectacular or if you're not uh, the flavor of the day, you're just overlooked. And I mean, that's the same as it ever was, right? We can look at things like the late 80s, early 90s art, you know, the image art, which was just the hotness at the time. And we had all these journeyman artists who were uh, turning in their same high quality, high level of quality work and just overlooked because they weren't Todd or Rob or Jim. It's a, it's a tough, tough little uh, spot to be in as just a solid, but perhaps not exciting artist. Elaine likes the character-focused stories, likes the Mahayogi, but hopes he goes back to calling himself the Warlock, and he wants more romantic blotty blah between Scott and Jean. Next up, Nick in Long Island, and we got ourselves a no-prize attempt, which, without Stan replying, what's even the point? You know, I can't give him a no-prize, you can't give him a no-prize, only one guy can hand out no-prizes, and he ain't, he ain't here today. Anyway, let's get into Nick's, uh, Nick's complaint or correction. You see, back in issue number 47, Bobby says he's got to take off his civvies before icing up, lest they crack. But, Nick points out, back in issue 45, he does ice up when clothed. Then, in issue 46, he de-ices and he's back to wearing the same non-cracked clothes. Now, Nick is going for his no prize here. He offers that Professor X had trained him in to maybe, like, not ice up as cold sometimes thereby saving his civvies. Well, that's as good an explanation as any, I suppose. Um, but while Nick's got us, he's got another error to point out uh, and a uh, correction to, to deal out, I guess. This is about the Living Diamond story, which, wow, somebody actually paid attention to that? I mean, I wrote a few pages on that, and I barely did. Um, anyway, Nick offers a correction to whoever it was that wrote that. Maybe Roy Thomas? I actually hope it was Roy Thomas, because I know how much he loves being corrected. We've seen evidence of his very snippy replies to people who try to correct him. Anyway, Nick says that uh, diamonds are not the hardest things in the world. They are, in fact, the hardest mineral in the world. Hard Hardness on this scale means whether or not something can be scratched. So no other mineral can scratch diamond, but that's not to say you couldn't smash one to pieces with a hammer. And, uh... I'm guessing that if this were an error at all, it was probably just uh, a miswriting. I mean, it's this is very, very nitpicky stuff here, but since it might have been Roy who wrote it, I'm, I'm okay with it. Now, Nick ain't done yet. He's got Error the Third here. Uh, the sheriff in the backup story's clothes changed colors between panels. Wow. Uh, can we get old Nick to time travel to current year? I think we can use a guy like this. Could you imagine what he might have to say about Carol Danvers's bamboozling hair, which somehow changes in length and style every other panel. I think we need, we need you, and we need you, Nick. You're our only hope. Um, now, sadly, since this is the all-new, all-lazy X-Men letters page, we do not get to see Statesman Stan try to wriggle his way out of any of these boners, which, again, what's the point? Oh, well, let's get to the next letter here. This is David in Massachusetts. Now, he says if Marvel splits up Gene and Scott, he's never ever going to buy another comic book again. Uh, not only that, 
Oh, geez. He, hmm. Huh. He says if they break up, he, if, if they break up, he actually, he threatens to burn down Marvel's offices. Like, like for real. <laughs> Here's the quote. If you keep Scott and Jean together, I'll say face front forever. But if you split them up, I bid you face front until my bosom buddies and I burn down a certain building on Madison Avenue. And between us, buddy boy, we know which one. Wow. And I mean, the delicate geniuses writing the books now think they got a bed when their books are rated 9 out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10. Could you imagine? Ay ay ay. I kind of wish that was the last letter because, I mean, how are we going to top that? Uh, we got one more, though. This is Michael in California, and he is very, 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 very mad. He says he's bought every Marvel comic for the past 2.5 years and has taken offense to how Stan and the gang are portraying hippies. Did I mention that Mike's from Berkeley, California? Uh, you see, Mike, Michael here, he's got long hair, and he hates how his fellow long hairs are being treated in the books. He goes on for a very, very long run-on sentence to talk about everything that hippies have done for the world and for art. He says, hey, you know what? There are bad hippies out there, but hey, there's bad in every group. And man, I guess we just don't know the struggle of the Berkeley Trust Fund hippie, do we? Hmm. Boy, I, yeah, I, I take it all back. I'm, I'm now. I'm glad Stan doesn't have to reply to these because, uh, wow, that's heavy stuff. Um, that's the end of our letters page here. Let's hop into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as a plethora of pronouncements up for grabs. Kind of a weak subtitle. I kind of struggled with it, but not as much as usual. Let's get into it. Item: The world famous Society for Comic Art Research and Preservation just held their annual International Convention of Comics Art at the Statler Hill. Now I'm struggling. Statler Hilton Hotel in New York City. And it seems as though Marvel has swept their awards. How about we go through them as a suspect, as they all are. Uh, Best Adventure Comic featuring a single character, Spider-Man. Best Adventure Comic featuring a group, Fantastic Four. The Best Western Comic, we get a three-way tie. Ghost Rider, Warp... Warhide Kid, no, Rawhide Kid, and Kid Cult. Best War Comic, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Best, oh, come on. Best Costumed Hero Humor. Not brand, ugh, which I gotta assume was running unopposed. Uh, Best All Reprint is Fantasy Masterpieces, which is now called Marvel Superheroes. Best Combination uh, Magazine, new and old, is Marvel Superheroes, which as we've mentioned before in earlier bullpen bulletins, is headlined by an all-new story. Uh, Best regular short feature. And um, this is a tie, and I gotta assume a misprint, because this award must have been the boringest regular short feature, because our winners are Tales of Asgard and The Inhumans. And I tell you, if there's a spinner rack in hell, that's what's on it. Now, uh, Stan says the only category they didn't win was juvenile humor because Marvel has no such books. Uh, Let's get into uh, creators here. Best editor, guess who? Best writer, guess who again? Best pencil artist, Jack Kirby. Best inker, Joe Sinnott. Back over to characters here. We got best costumed character, Spider-Man. Best non-superpowered character, Nick Fury. Best superpowered group, we got a tie. It's the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. Best Supporting Character, a three-way tie. J. Jonah Jameson, Foggy Nelson, and Jasper Sitwell. 
Best Supporting Female, Another Tie, Mary Jane Watson and Grain Stacy. No, Gwen Stacy. Best Villain, we got three, but the top vote-getter was, unsurprisingly, Doctor Doom, with over 50% of the total vote. The other two are Red Skull and Yellow Claw. Those are the awards, and I'm not going to lie here, I was very tickled when I saw that this was going to be the contents of the Bullpen Bulletin this month. Uh, I feel like the last few have been kind of uh, going through the motions here. I mean, uh, the last, like, two or three had Stan looking out his window and being like, hey, these are the... It's like a... What was that? Romper room where they look into the magic mirror. It's like, I see this person and this person. It was just him talking about the creators he saw outside his window. And, uh, well, that gets old pretty quick. I also love just getting into the gestalt of um, whatever era that we're currently exploring here. Seeing what the comics landscape looked like in 1968 and if this were maybe a couple decades later they'd probably at least give a nod to some of the other companies stuff that might have shown up in these uh in these awards here because i all we have here is what stan is telling us so we don't know if these are like actual one awards or nominations or it's it's not entirely clear but it's still cool to see what the uh you know, what Marvel was looking like at this uh, at this point in time. Uh, this takes us into Stan's soapbox. And uh, you might remember, last episode, we learned that the man said he'd start getting real. So here's uh, some relevant, uh, relevance, relevancy. Here's Stan talking about current events. Now, he talks about bigotry. And uh, you know what? Actions speak louder, Stan, because we've all seen how you betrayed the Berkeley hippie in your hate, Max. I'm kidding of course let's let's get into stan's actual discussion here and it's i mean there really isn't much to say it's a very very surface level more or less telling us to be cool and tolerant to one another you know it's the the standard advice on tolerance that uh you know we should all treat each other cool you know we should all be cool with one another uh, stan wraps up his uh his missive here by saying that we're all children of god and we should act like it and i mean whether or not you are a person of faith i i think that um I think just treating each other coolly is uh, probably the way to go. And sadly, for many people, that's proven to be one of those things that's simple but not easy. So we should all just uh, listen to Stan's words here and um, try to be cool to one another. Next up, the mighty Marvel checklist. We got Silver Surfer number three. Welcome to the world, Mephisto. Mephisto. This is Mephisto. Or Mephisto, however you say that. Uh, I'm not sure why there's an S at the end of his name here. It might just be a, uh, you know, a misprint. Who knows? Uh, anyway, I actually checked his page on the always reliable wikia to double check. And I, you know, I say always reliable because the only pages that seem to get any attention or updates are the ones that have a stupid Disney Plus show. Anyway, uh, Mephisto's first appearance uh, there is listed as being Bible Tales for Young Folk number one. April 1953 cover date, in a story called In the Beginning, dot, 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 Genesis 1, 2, 3, by Jerry Robinson. And Mephisto was the serpent. So uh, we learn something new every day, that Mephisto is actually the devil. Next up, Not Brand, ugh, number 11. Oh, featuring Spidey Man and the Sunk Mariner. But that's not all. We also have the nuttiest parody of King Kong you ever seen. Uh, Fantastic Four number 81. This is the first ever change-up to the FF's lineup. 
wherein the third least boring inhuman, but still boring inhuman, Crystal, takes Sue's place as she's on maternity leave. Spider-Man 67 versus Mysterio, still. Avengers 58 features the Black Panther and more on the mystery of the Vision. Daredevil 46 versus the Jester. Mighty Thor number 158, quote, one of Marvel's most daring experiments. And uh, this made me do a little bit of research here. Very, very little research. This is basically the story of Thor reconciling that he is both a thunder god and the mortal Don Blake. Captain America 108 features him versus the Trapster. Incredible Hulk 110, the death of Bruce Banner. I don't think it'll stick. Iron Man number 8 versus the Gladiator. Submariner number 8 versus the Thing. Captain Marvel number 8 versus a killer robot. Cool. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number 7 features Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D. for the first of 5 billion times. Doctor Strange number 175 has Doc versus the Sons of Satanish. Sergeant Fury number 60 has Dum Dum getting court-martialed, which sounds like a blast. Uh, Captain Savage number 8, a mission dot 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 that may end in death. Aren't they all? Uh, Collector's Item Classics number 18 is reprints. And we got some listings here for books that are still on sale, if you're lucky. Spectacular Spider-Man number 2 and Marvel Tales number 17. And of course, we mustn't forget all them specials for 25 cents each. Fantastic Four number 6, Spider-Man number 5, Avengers number 2, Hulk number 1, and Tales of Asgard number 1. Anyway, that is our issue, and that is where we'll leave it. Uh, before we get into the uh, contact information, I want to thank you all for allowing me some time to... Um, Kind of forget about what's going on today. I think this episode might have gone uh, 20 minutes longer than it might have needed to, but uh, I don't know. I just needed some time to focus on on silly stuff. So thank you for indulging me and facilitating that. Uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you guys know where to find me. Uh, Ace Comics on Twitter, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, and the x group on Facebook. I think I've finally run out of words, tangents and all. So I want to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>